Well, you came back for part two. I'm proud to see you. This series, of course, is designed to help us have greater confidence in the books that we use all the time, these English Bibles that we have in our possession. So if you weren't here for part one, I'm sorry we can't preach that lesson again tonight. We're going to have a brief review, but the basic purpose of this two-lesson series is to be confident that what we have in our hands is what God wants us to know that he's revealed to us. So I'm going to start with 1 Peter chapter 1, if you want to open there with me. 1 Peter 1 verse 24 says, well, let's start with verse 22. 1 Peter 1 verse 22. Since you've purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and the sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That's God's promise. So I'm convinced, and I hope you will be if you're not already, that we have in our possession the word of the Lord. And it continues to exist, to endure throughout the centuries. But I must confess that God has chosen a most interesting way of preserving his word. And uh, it's not necessarily the way anybody else would have predicted, but that's what he's chosen. And part of what we're going to talk about tonight is the history that relates to how we got our English Bibles. So thank you for being back here this evening, and let's get right at the lesson at hand. Well, how did we get the Bibles that are so usable and available today? That is a long and fascinating story. It's not for one hour or even three hours. But we're going to at least hit the highlights. And the first thing you need to know is that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic and the New Testament in Greek by about 40 different writers over about 1,600 years. It's not a book, is it? It's many books put together. And we do not possess any of the original autographs of either the Old or the New Testaments. You may notice I have that in a place that jumps out at you. Are you aware of that? There are none of the original autographs. What I mean by that is the actual handwritten copies of the original as God dictated it to human beings. We don't have any of those. So how can we know this is the word, the word of God? That's the question. And that's a good question. So how can we be confident? I say so much time has passed, so many things have happened. It's difficult to translate. So it's a good question we're talking about, a question worth discussing as you talk about using this book to direct our lives. So let's get at it. I said this morning that the most trustworthy English versions of this text are those that are translated by large committees of scholars with various backgrounds and that are produced with the intent of giving the world a word-for-word -word translation of the best available Greek and Hebrew text. We'll not preach that lesson again. But we said that these five are good representatives of that kind of an English version. So if you're going to use an English Bible, my recommendation is you use one of these five as the one you depend on to help tell you what God wants you to know. And there's multiplied reasons for that, which we talked a little bit about this morning. But even when you take those five and you compare them, you're going to find differences between them. And we explained a little bit of that this morning. Many recent discoveries of ancient manuscripts and the relative importance given these help determine how the exact translations come out in English. So, Tonight, we're going to focus on the New Testament. There's a whole series of discussions about the Old Testament, and those should be done, and we'll leave that to your regular preachers here 
to take you through, but there's a lot to be said about that as well. But we're going to focus on the new because that's the law by which we live today. And we're going to say to you there are variations in our text of the English versions of the New Testament. I've already shown you some. And that's because there are variations in the extant Greek manuscripts and in the ancient versions of the New Testament. So there are variants, and we'll see that in the course of this discussion. So let's now talk about specifics about the New Testament. What do we have supporting the text of the New Testament? And what we have is three great witnesses. You see on the screen before you, three great witnesses that testify to the text of the New Testament. The first one is manuscripts. And I said this morning that a manuscript means a handwritten document. But in the study of biblical text, it's more than that. So listen to me closely. In the textual uh, analysis of the Bible, a manuscript means a handwritten document in the original language. So in the case of the New Testament, that's the Greek language. So manuscripts are Greek handwritten copies of the New Testament. In the case of the Old Testament, it would be Hebrew and or Aramaic. All right, that's clear. And I like it when folks nod their heads, so I know you're still awake and with me. All right. So here are some of the famous manuscripts of the New Testament, of the Rylands um, manuscripts in the Vatican, Sinaitic, and the Alexandrian. We're going to talk a little bit more about those. But that's just four of a lot. And before we talk specifics, I want you to understand that there are lots of ancient documents, not just the New Testament. There's several that are written in the first century, the same century in which the New Testament was written. So, for example, Livy has written the history of Rome in the first century. He was a famous historian from that century. We have 20 manuscripts of his works in possession somewhere on earth. Well, that's pretty good, really, for ancient documents. But the earliest one is 500 years after he wrote it. It's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. And it dates to at least 500 years after he actually wrote it. We don't have the original of Livy, right? Caesar wrote the Gallic Wars in the first century. We have 10 manuscripts out of that in our possession. The earliest one's 900 years later. And Tacitus's annals, very famous history work of the first century, the earliest one is 800 years, and we only have two anywhere on earth. But historians study those things all the time, and they have great confidence in them. Now, are you ready? Eyes on the screen. What about the New Testament? There are over 5,795 partial or complete manuscripts of the New Testament in somebody's possession somewhere on earth. And they're always finding more. You wear this, the search for New Testament manuscripts has not stopped, as we'll tell you a little bit later. But there's over 5,700 of them. Folks, there's not anything on the face of the earth that's in the same ballpark, I would say, in the same universe as the New Testament in terms of its textual support. I hope that got across. So here's the point. Even though we don't have the original manuscripts, we've got 5,795 plus copies that can be compared with each other to conclude what was the original text, even though we don't have the original. There's not another text in all of history that's even in the same, I said light year in that case. So when God chose to preserve his word, he preserved it marvelously compared to any other thing that's ever been written in the history of mankind, by far. So 1 Peter 1 said it right. All flesh is as grass, the flower of the grass, they fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. God has preserved it for us. That's a wonderful thing. So let's talk just a little more about these major manuscripts. These three you see over here on the 
bottom of that list of manuscripts are the most precious documents with regard to the New Testament and frankly the old as well that we have anywhere. So I expect you know that the Vatican manuscript is kept in the Vatican, which is of course over in Italy. And it's been there for a long, long time. It was not made available for the public to use, however, for a long, long time. In fact, it was well after 1611 that any access was given to the Vatican manuscript except for the Roman Catholic clergy. So the translators of the King James Version of the New Testament and the Old Testament in 1611 did not have access to Vaticanus. But it was there in possession of the Roman Catholic Church. Alexandrian was in possession of the Bishop of Alexandria for a long time, but it did not become available till mid-1600s, after the King James Version was translated, that it was available for people to actually use. And so there's a long story about that, which I don't have time to tell you. But the fact is, it's another very famous compilation of the books of the New Testament and the Old Testament, and now resides in British Library in London. If you want to go see it, you're allowed to see it. And the last one, Sinaiticus, dates back to the 300s. It was not discovered, folks, until the 1800s. And the gentleman who's credited with that is a gentleman named Constantine von Tischendorf. They like that. Constantine von Tischendorf. He gave his life to finding every manuscript he could to support the text of the New Testament. And himself wanted to make the Greek New Testament as firmly established as anything ever. And so he gave his life for that. Wish I had time to tell you the story, but I'll tell you his discovery of Sinaiticus was better than, uh, I always forget, the lost raider of the ark. What do you, what's the guy's name? The Indiana Jones. It's better than Indiana Jones. The story of how he discovered that in the monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai. It's a great story. I don't have time to tell you that, but I hope I'll pique your interest. And if you want more information, I'll give you some places to go. Well, you can just click in the inter internet and find it. Von Tischendorf, if you can spell it. But Sinaiticus didn't become available until the 1800s, folks. And it now resides in the British Library as well. So those two famous ones, which are most of the whole Bible, reside there. And they are very important to us. But that's just one of the testimonials to the text of the New Testament. There's a second, and that is the versions. So you need to understand that a manuscript is a handwritten document in the original language. A version is a handwritten document, at least it was then. Now they are printed in another language besides the original. So for the New Testament, it's any language other than Greek. And there are a lot of those folks that date way back. The Syriac version dates back to the 100s. The Latin also, the original Latin, and the Ethiopic and Coptic. Maybe you remember in the Bible in Acts chapter 8, there was a gentleman from Ethiopia. Remember? The treasurer of Queen Candace of Ethiopia and was reading from the book of Isaiah, wasn't he? He had his own copy of that ancient document. We don't know if it was written in Hebrew. Probably not. It was probably written in Coptic. And by the way, if you want to go see something similar to that, you go to East Berlin, which is now just Berlin, and go to the Bode Museum, and you'll find a copy of the Isaiah manuscript that probably was something similar to what he was reading. Pretty amazing. At any rate, those ancient versions are also in existence. Lots of places, lots of copies that date way back to the early centuries. So that's another whole set of testimonies. It's considered secondary because it's not the original language. But it's still a good help to uncover what's written in the New Testament. But there's a third 
And that is the early church writers in the first century did a lot of quoting of other passages. So much so that this author says, so extensive are the citations that if all other sources for our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, and class, has there been an effort to destroy the New Testament? There has over and over again. It's another amazing story about how God has preserved his word. Efforts have been made repeatedly to eliminate any reference to the text of the Bible. Well, these quotations, the citations of the early church writers would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament, says Bruce Metzger in his book, The Text of the New Testament. And he's an expert on that field. So you have three the quotations of the church fathers, the versions, and the manuscripts, all of which support the text of the New Testament. So let's just explore a little further about those manuscripts. The oldest manuscripts are unseals. So you're going to learn a new word tonight. An unseal is something that's written in all capital letters. So if you see over there on that document to the right, that's a scrap of a manuscript. You can see all those letters are capital. So they are the most ancient and the most significant of all the manuscript evidence, the unseals. So here's where it would be how you'd have to read it. So I'm going to give you just a moment, see if you can read that. Because that's the way it was, folks. In Greek... All the letters were capital. They were all run together. There was no punctuation. There were no verses, no chapters, no separation of words. So can you read that? Kind of. I'm going to read it to you, but it's not easy. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. I've lost it. Set apart. For the gospel of God, which he promised. You see it? Was that easy to read? Now I want to preach a little sermon right here. That's probably what the eunuch had to look at. It's probably a scroll on an animal skin of the book of Isaiah. In all capital letters with no punctuation. And he was reading it on a super highway sitting in a Cadillac. No, folks, he was reading it sitting in a chariot, and I hope he wasn't driving. My guess is, as important as he was, there was somebody driving the chariot for him, and probably soldiers around him. He was an important person. But he was sitting in the back of that chariot, holding a scroll with writing like that on it, trying to read what God wanted him to know. Isn't that amazing? So may I visually demonstrate <laughs> we get car sick trying to read in a car I say why did God take a man from way off somewhere else and physically transport him to talk to this one man I think it's because you had a passionate person who had traveled all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem just to worship very likely a Jewish proselyte, on his way home from church, trying to read the Bible in a chariot. Incredible. The man was passionate, clearly. And he became a New Testament Christian, didn't he? Well, he was probably reading Unseals. All right, so those are the most important. Later came along the cursives or the minuscules. Those are more like script writing. They're smaller letters, cursive. All of these date from the ninth century and beyond, though, so they're not as significant in terms of their antiquity. And there are over 2,800 of those 5,700 that are cursives. So they're not, they don't have the weight of the older ones. But they're still important because they help support the text of the Bible. So let's spend just a moment on the most important unseals. The oldest vellum manuscripts, vellum is calf hide, 
that's been fixed so you can write on it. They date back to AD 300 to 450. Codex Alexandrinus, Codex Vaticanus, Codex Sinaiticus, and they contain almost complete copies of the New Testament and most of the Old Testament as well. A codex is a book, folks. So these are actually bound together. So you can turn pages, and what you see is pictures of pages of those manuscripts. Incredibly important documents you're looking at right here. So what I want to say to you, class, is you're privileged living in this century that you can go, if you'd like, and spend hours and hours exploring Codex Sinaiticus. So let me give you a little more close-up here. Alexandrinus is two columns. I want you to look at that handwriting. Somebody sat and wrote every one of those letters. Not with a big pen. They dipped it. They had special ink they used and special pens to write. Every single letter. These scribes who did this work did it hour after hour after hour after hour. And they were so meticulous that if they got to the end of that particular page making a copy of the previous one and it wasn't exactly the same place they would end on the previous one, then they destroyed it. And you didn't just get out the Xerox and make another copy. You started over. So you think they were meticulous and careful? It is said that some of those guys were so good they knew exactly what was the middle letter on that page. And they knew how many lines it was supposed to have. And so in this case, it was two columns. In the case of Vaticanus, it was three columns. I'm not sure why they choose to write, chose to write in two columns or three, but that's what they did. And, and look, I, I don't know how good you are at printing, but talk about tedious work. And then imagine writing on animal skins, not paper. And then Codex Sinaiticus was four columns, probably so you could get more succinct and use the the document type material you had more effectively. But what you don't know is that you can go look at Codex Sinaiticus online because the entire doc document has been digitized and you can go to the website. So our genius IT guy sitting in the back is now going to take you on a little journey to the website. If you want to go to it, it's codexsinaiticus.org.com, isn't it? CodexSinaiticus.com. There it is. That's the website. And now, by the genius of his fingers, we're going to explore this a little bit. Let me get over here. So, you see up here, you can, you can go to the home page. This is the page where you're actually looking at the manuscript. And so, here you can choose what you want to look at. So, he has picked out Mark... Chapter 16, verse 8. You see that? But you can pick any place in the Bible, and you can go look at that part. That's the piece of the manuscript that displays the end of the book of Mark right here and the beginning of the book of Luke. See that? And, of course, for all you Greek readers, that would be obvious. But you can go look at it, and on this side is the Greek in more modern type style, and down here is the English translation. So it's all right there in front of you, and you can take a long time, if you like, and examine that as long as you wish. And we don't have a long time here, but I want to show you something. So you want to blow up this piece right here? I want to see this a little bigger, if you would. So you see, he's got himself where he can do that. He's put his hand on the manuscript. And what you're seeing there is a magnification of this column here. That's the, here's the end of verse 8 of Mark 8. I mean Mark 16, verse 8. And notice, it's empty after that. And then if you go over here and go up, there's the title for the beginning of the book of Luke. And here's chapter 1 beginning for the book of Luke. But you'll notice from verse 9 to verse 20... Keep going down if you would. 
it looks like something's been written on there, doesn't it? Kind of looks like it's been erased. So I got to, uh, I'm going to bug you with something. No fair looking on your phones while I'm talking. I want you to find out the word for a manuscript that had writing on it and then was erased so they could write on it again. There's a word for that. Very important in textual studies. And Tischendorf, the guy I mentioned a while ago, became famous for translating one of those things. And I'm no, I don't want to use the word. I about said it. Where he was actually translating what had been erased. Very difficult. So, why is Mark 8 verses 9 through 20 missing there? Is a real good question. There are books written on that. I mean, it's a big topic. But the fact is, Sinaiticus is missing that. And so is Vaticanus. So I mentioned that to you this morning, that that's one of the questions about Mark 16, 9 through 20, is these two very important manuscripts have that section of Mark missing. The question is why and how much emphasis should you put on that? And we'll come back to that in a little bit. All right. Isn't this fascinating, folks? You can go study Codex Sinaiticus yourself for whatever good that'll do you, but it's there. All right, let's go back. You can see how much I depend on techie guys. Here we go. So the Greek New Testament, divinely inspired in its original autographs, was transmitted through the hands of copyists. Copyists made the manuscripts, the ancient versions, and the early writings. They were all by hand, every one of them, until, as I mentioned this morning, the 1400s, with the invention of the Gutenberg printing press. And maybe you know, maybe you don't, the original book printed on the Gutenberg printing press was the Bible. And so after the 1400s, it became possible, thank the Lord, to expand copies of the Bible by the millions, which is still happening today. What you probably don't know is there are still numerous languages spoken by some people on this continent, or on this planet, in which they have no Bible at all in their language. Most all the commonly spoken languages have the Bible fully translated, but there's still plenty of languages that people speak for which there is none. That's not good. So may I put in a plug for you supporting organizations that are translating the text of the Bible into other languages which don't have them. That's thrown in free of charge. In some cases, copyists were looking at earlier copies. So watch, look at me up here. You're sitting at this table, maybe. Maybe you did it on your lap. And you're dipping your thing in the ink and you're looking at a copy over here and you're writing over here on an animal skin, letter by letter, what's on here over here, okay? That's one way it was done. How do you mass produce hand copies? Well, you have a scriptorium. A scriptorium is a room in which you had 20 people all at their own places, and you're up here reading the document to them, and they write it down while you read it. Would that be more difficult? Probably. But it's the way they mass-produced handwritten copies back then in a scriptorium. So human copyists are susceptible to slips and faults either of the eye or of the ear, wouldn't you say? I mean, uh, how good are you at spelling? English is horrendous. Thankfully, Greek isn't as hard as English for spelling. But that's a challenge, wouldn't you agree? So what I'm trying to get across to you folks is the idea that the text of the Scriptures has been transmitted for thousands of years through generations of copyists, and we have it as accurate as we have it, is beyond belief. 
Critics, however, of the scriptures are not so kind. Some scribes were also sometimes susceptible to trying to improve a text by making it agree with other passages of scripture. We know that happens sometimes. But we have almost 6,000 copies to compare, folks, which is a huge help with manuscripts, plus all the versions. From one point of view, it could be said that there are over 200,000 errors in the Greek text of the New Testament, and that is said by critics of the Bible. And so how can you trust even our modern Greek text, much less taking that and putting it in English? That's another whole question. So a critic of the Bible would tell you, you're taking this book in English and you're thinking you can depend on it. You can't even depend on the Greek because it's got over 200,000 errors in it. So what do you think you're doing? You seriously think you have what God said? I think you need to hear that because that's being said. So how do I deal with that? Well, it's not I. I'm building on the shoulders of giants who've studied this a lot longer than I have. But I say the large number of errors counted this way is not an accurate way to count it. For example, if you had one variation that occurred in 400 different manuscripts, the same one, they count that as 400 errors. No, that's one error repeated 400 times. Right? So that's not a good way to count it. That's misleading at best. So I want to show you the best way to count it. And when I get finished, I want you to be blown away by the accuracy of copies of the text of the New Testament. So here's the way we're going to look at it. I'm going to have you use my Bible here. So I'm going to turn to Matthew, the beginning of Matthew. Now understand that in this version that I have, there's a lot of other stuff in here besides just the text. You get it? So we're going to eliminate all that other stuff and have just the text. And we're going to go all the way over here to Revelation chapter 20, what, 2? Is that the last chapter in the Bible? Yes, Revelation 22. So here it is in my Bible right here. And we're going to say, folks, that that is 253 pages. Isn't it wonderful to have our children here? And they're especially interested in this topic, don't you think? These little babies. All right, everybody get your attention back here now. The New Testament, let's just say all the text of the New Testament is found on 253 pages right here. Okay? Here's what we're going to say first. 80% of the text of the New Testament has no variations in all those almost 6,000 manuscripts. Folks, do you hear what I just said? Out of this 253 pages, 218 of those pages, all but 35. So if you watch closely, I'm going to pick out 35 pages right here. The rest of it, there is no disagreement in all those copies. Remember how I told you how they were made? One letter at a time, page after page after page. The entire text of the New Testament, 86% of it is totally in agreement. That in itself, if I stopped there, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I'd say I'd built a strong case for the veracity of the text of the New Testament. But we're not finished. There are lots of spelling variations. 12% of the variations are spelling. Well, that's another 30 and a half pages, right? What's 253 minus 218? That's 35, isn't it? Well, 30 and a half of those pages, that's all but four and a half. So there's four and a half pages left. All the rest of these are spelling variations. I want to give you some examples. Often words in Greek copies are spelled differently over a period of years. Does language ever change? Well, yeah, it does. Spell the word judgment. I don't do it out loud. 
Judgment. J-U-D-G-E-M-E-N-T, right? Wrong. <laughs> it's J-U-D-G-M-E-N-T now. In fact, if you go to a standard dictionary, you'll find both of them. So you can spell it either way and still get the idea of the word judgment. Well, the same things happen in Greek. So sometimes E-I is changed for I. That's a variant, folks. You could call that an error. No, it's a variant. A-I is changed for E. Bethzatha becomes Bethesda. I mean, that's the kind of stuff we're talking about in that whole section of what are called errors, which has nothing to do with what it says, folks. And then there's another one and a half percent, which is another 3.25 pages. Well, we only had four and a half pages. So what do I have left? A page and a quarter. That other section is minor variations like this. Matthew 1.18. Turn to your Bibles, if you would. In Matthew 1.18. And I know you have an English version now. So we're really, we're really talking about the Greek. There are variants in the readings of Matthew 19, or Matthew 1.18. Mine says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Is that what you're saying, roughly? Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Well, there are some ancient manuscripts that say that. There are others that say the birth of Christ Jesus. I mean, that's difficult. There are others that say the birth of Jesus. There are others that say the birth of Christ. That's four variants on that one text. Well, that's four errors. Repeated a hundred times, that's hundreds of errors. No, it is not. And it has no substance in terms of errors. But it is true that those are readings you can find in manuscripts. Okay? So we've got to be honest about that. But that's what you're dealing with. So that leaves us significant variations of 0.5% or 1.25 pages out of the entire 253 pages. Significant variants. And of course, the ones I brought up to you this morning are in that group. Right? So let's talk about those now for a few minutes. Significant variations. I will not talk about all of them. It'll be your job to explore this further. But we're only talking about a page and a half or page and a quarter of total text of the New Testament. Beyond belief, folks. That through all these years of copying, that's all you've got in terms of significant variations. And I'll say right here and say it again later, there isn't one doctrinal issue affected by any of them. So Acts 8.37. Here's what a textual critic does. And you need to understand this. Does Acts 8.37 belong in the original autograph of the book of Acts? That's the question. Yes or no. So how do you decide that? You have to go to the textual evidence that supports it or that opposes it. Let's do it. Here's what the King James Version says. We already showed you that. Here's what the New King James Version says. And you remember I referred you to the footnote that says N U and M omit verse 37. So what are those? I'm going to get to that in just a second. N, U, and M. They don't put verse 37 in there in the Greek text. They put it in a footnote. And so it says it's found in Western texts, including Latin, the Latin text, some of the ancient Western ones. So what's the support for Acts 8.37? There's one 6th century unseal. The 6th century that's the 500s, right? Because the 20th century is the 1900s, right? The 6th century is the 500s. We have one unseal that has that verse in it in the 6th century, dated to the 6th century. Some good minuscules, but if you were listening class, and I know you were because you're such a good class, minuscules are dated from the 800s and farther. So they're more recent. There's some good minuscules that have that verse in it. The old Latin version, which dates way back. So that is some heavy support. 
But it is a version, not a manuscript. And so what is N-U and M? Here, I'm going to explain it to you. Let me read this to you. N-U is the Greek text in the 26th edition of the Nestle Aland Greek New Testament. Nestle Aland is a group of scholars that put together the Greek text. And the third edition of the United Bible Society's Greek New Testament is the U. So the two together provide a textual support for the Greek. That's in you. And I'm telling you, those scholars all left out Acts 8.37 out of their Greek text. They were not supportive of that it was in the original autograph. M stands for the majority text. The difference there is the majority text holds that the best Greek text is based on the consensus of the majority of existing Greek manuscripts, even though many are late and none earlier than the 5th century. They're just going to take the majority. And none of them are earlier than the 5th century. M also does not have Acts 837 in it. I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that's pretty heavy evidence against it being in the original text of the Bible. And the opposition to this verse, practically all other manuscripts and versions do not have it. No Greek manuscript earlier than the 6th century knows this reading. So, does Acts 8.37 belong in the text of the Bible? That is why you have some English versions that note it as a footnote. Not in the text. So I know you're sitting there asking, well, what's your opinion? And I'm not giving it to you. I'm telling you the facts of the textual support and not support for this verse. I will say this much. It is certainly questionable when you look at the whole compilation of evidence. And may I say to you, there isn't anything that would be lost in terms of your understanding of needing to confess if you didn't have Acts 8.37. Right? How about Romans 10.10? For with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10.10. And there are lots of other passages that speak to confession. 1 John 5 was the second piece of this page and a quarter we talked about. And we saw considerable differences between the versions. So what is the support for this set of verses 7 and 8 as we see it in the King James? And I told you the King James translators can be excused in some ways because they didn't even have access even to the three greatest manuscripts when they did their translations. What's the support? Well... Erasmus in his third edition of the Greek New Testament put it in it. But I can tell you there's a long story to that. And he he was not going to put it in there the way it was in the King James Version. Because he couldn't find a single manuscript that had that in it. He finally found one. And because he found one, he put it in. And that's the version Tyndale used when he translated his version into English. There are only two manuscripts from one from the 14th and the 15th and one from the 16th century in which you find that reading. Two other manuscripts have this rendition in the verses written in the margin. I'm pausing on purpose. And late Latin versions have that rendering. So what's the opposition? To the rendering in the King James. Practically all other manuscripts and versions do not have it. And there's no manuscript, Greek manuscript earlier than the 14th century that knows anything about it. I'm, I'm going to tell you my opinion about that one. I think 1 John 5 was tampered with later to put in something extra that has really no great significance to us. And something things were added. That's what I think in that case. I would recommend to you the reading in the American Standard and the New American Standard, which for a period of time wrote what was in those versions without a footnote. That's how convinced they were. The evidence against the King James reading of that passage is powerful. 
And they can be excused in some ways because they didn't know a lot of this stuff. What about Mark 16? The one we're most interested in. And that's one of the longest segments in all the Bible that's questioned. And I showed you part of the reason why, right? You remember? The Sinaiticus has it blank. But there looks like there was writing underneath there. And there's some little writing in there. And there's a whole bunch of reasons people give as to why it might have been missing. So we don't understand all of that. The Vatican and the Sinaitic manuscripts do not have these verses. I just showed that to you. The earliest known copies of the old Syriac and the Latin Vulgate don't have it either. And a large number of Armenian transcripts. What's the support for these verses? Almost every other manuscript has it. So it depends on how much weight you put on Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, you see? And there's some evidence that there was some monkey business going on there for those. So should we put as much evidence on that? And the statement from Arrhenius, which shows the existence of this passage in the second century, that's a support. But it's a statement from one of the church fathers. So we've talked a little bit about that page and a quarter. There's not a whole lot else to talk about because Matthew, I mean, Mark 6, 9 through 20 is a good chunk of it. But there's some others. And Bible students know about them. And you're welcome to go study them. But folks, when you get finished, I'm telling you, there are no doctrinal issues affected in the first place. And second, when you put all of this together, you can have confidence that the Greek text has been transmitted down to us with verification, with solidity, with practically zero problems, and you're reading what God wanted you to know. The interval between the dates of the original composition and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be, in fact, negligible. And the last foundation of any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established, says Sir Frederick Kenyon on, in his book, The Bible and Archaeology, in 1940. And I say Amen. We have great confidence in the Greek text of the New Testament that provide the basis for our English Bible. And secondly, we can also have great confidence in English if you use a version that's translated by large committees of scholars from various backgrounds who want to give the world an accurate word-for-word translation of the best available Greek and Hebrew text. And we have them. The word of the Lord endures forever. That's my lesson about that. Now, were you intending for me to do an invitation tonight? Is, that what we're, is there an invitation song? Okay, good. I love it. And so I'm going to do this. We're finished with this lesson. So now I'm going to turn to the book we can count on. And I want to say to you that Jesus, when he left the earth, according to the testimony of the Gospels, told his disciples, this is your job. I want you to turn with me to Matthew 28. No question about Matthew 28 of any kind. Verse 16 says, The eleven disciples went away to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. May I remind you, brothers and sisters and friends, Jesus is saying this after he died on the cross, was buried, resurrected on the third day, and had appeared to his disciples according to Acts 1 over a period of 40 days, explaining to them in many cases the truth of what he was telling them. And they had seen a resurrected Savior. And now he's ready to leave. And he's telling them, this is what I want you to do. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
We call it the Great Commission because it's the greatest responsibility ever given to anybody to take the message of Jesus to the whole world. And you can be thankful in this church that you have men and women who've taken that very seriously and have themselves left home and family and gone to other parts of this world. Because the fact is in this particular century, there are more Christians as you and, I, you and I would understand that to be in this particular nation than anywhere else on earth. There's a lack of distribution of workers around the world. But Jesus said, you go to all nations and then you teach them. You make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then you teach them to do what I told you, which means they too have to help get the word to all the nations. And so through the centuries, it is God's intent for all of us to have a part in helping someone learn that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And John 20 says, many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples that are not written in that book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and believing you might have life in his name. That's the message. And when you believe, you're going to be baptized because that's what Jesus said. No arguments. You're going to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the remission of your sins, Acts 2.38 says. And it's in water, Acts 8 says, because that's what the eunuch did. So we don't like to close an assembly like this without extending the invitation of our Lord Jesus Christ to anyone that's here who might want to do just exactly what Jesus told his disciples to go teach everybody to do. So if you're here tonight and you're ready to confess Jesus, we don't want to leave without giving you that opportunity to do it publicly. You don't have to do it in this assembly. The eunuch did it in a chariot driving toward Ethiopia. And they stopped right then, got out of that chariot, went down in the water and baptized him. We won't stop any chariots because we're not going anywhere. Oh, yes, we are. Did you know this building is moving? Because the ball you're sitting on is doing this. So, yes, we're moving. We'll just stop everything, not the motion of the earth. But we'll stop everything and immerse you in water because everything's ready. And the eunuch said, what would hinder me from being baptized? And the only thing was his belief. And so that's what we'll ask you. Do you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God? If you're willing to confess that, we'll immerse you. And you can live your life as a Christian. So come while we stand and as we sing.